Faces of Fortitude is now a movement in portraits that doesn't tell stories, but it tells the emotions and the feelings of different stages of grief, loss, and trauma, and all people that have been affected by suicide in some way, be it loss, attempt, and even first responders. If you have been touched by suicide in some way, and you look at those photos, you go, oh God, how did they do that? That's so brave. So if you haven't been touched by it, and you are affected, and you see it, and you react, and you have this weird knee-jerk reaction, you create shame in that person that feels it. And that's what the stigma is. And it needs to stop. And it needs to stop by us having these conversations. And Faces of Fortitude kind of started that for me is, let's talk about this in a regular voice. Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. Listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end, your creative journey is all worth it. Mariangela Abeo is a photographer, producer, writer, and public speaker. She's the creator of Faces of Fortitude, a movement in portraits that strives to lay a foundation for healing for those affected by suicide. Faces of Fortitude provides a safe, stigma-free space, virtually through social media and in person with appearances and gallery events, for mental health and suicide to be discussed. Mariangela recently stood on the TEDx stage for the first time to deliver her talk entitled Celebrate the Survivor, Creating a Safe Space Around Suicide. Her goal is to combat the mental health stigma at a grassroots level where it all begins. In this episode, Mariangela returns to the Creative Live Studios where Faces of Fortitude was conceived and describes the moment when the light bulb went off during a class by Stacy Pearsall. We talk about her personal transformation in the past two years since she began Faces as a personal project on the weekends. Being self-taught, she explains what it took to push through imposter syndrome and call herself a photographer. We talk about how words that are whispered can create shame, and she gives us a sneak peek into writing her next TEDx talk. I intentionally saved Mariangela's powerful episode to be the milestone number 50 of our We Are Photographers podcast. As one of her faces, this is personally a very important episode to me. And as you'll hear me say, I now can't imagine a world where Faces of Fortitude doesn't exist. This is We Are Photographers with Mariangela Abeo, and this is her story. Mariangela Abeo, <laughs> it is so fabulous to have you here in person, back at Creative Live, full circle. It's so weird being here. What is weird about it? Um, the fact that this podcast room is where like all of my promotions happened in this company, <laughs> all the meetings with Celeste, with my boss that, you know, were here to tell me how great I was doing and my promotions. It's just a cool, it's a cool space to come back to. And this is where Faces of Fortitude was born. And so it, it's such a cool moment to kind of go, wow, I can not only call myself a professional photographer, but I can come back and talk about it in this space where it was literally conceived so a lot of things right in that sentence that I want to go to. But let's start with you saying, I can call myself a professional photographer, because I know you when you 
couldn't call yourself a professional photographer. Yeah, this is actually still pretty recent. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Yeah. When did you feel like you could? Why do you feel like you couldn't? And what flipped? You know, I will have to definitely liken it to a moment um, with Chase Jarvis when um, I did my first exhibit here and I was freaked out. I, I wanted to have a, a day where I put all my images up and showed people and look at all this stuff. And it was just, I think, six months into the project. And um, I had this imposter syndrome moment that I was like, what am I doing? And all these people that we worked with were all professional photographers. Not only were Creative Live employees professional photographers, but the people we had on, the instructors, were also professional photographers. And I was this mom who had a 10-year-old Nikon that took photos of her daughter that was a little ballerina and didn't know settings, didn't know anything. And all of a sudden I was doing an exhibit. Who was I? And I kind of expressed that to Chase on his way out one day. And I said, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is tonight. I should just not do this. This is crazy. And he looked at me and he said, there is something really special that you're able to do, that you're able to evoke from people when you take their picture. It has nothing to do with your settings. It has nothing to do with your camera. That's what makes you a photographer. And I said, oh. And I really kind of, you know, I've been reading all of the techie things and all of the geek kind of um, gear geeks that we got in into these studios. And that's what I thought a photographer was, is somebody that had the new Sony or that had this amazing lighting gear that was sponsored by whoever. And that was a photographer. And I didn't think about what their images made me feel like. And I think that's when I started realizing that I was a photographer, is that I realized that I was able to get something from someone in front of my camera. And um, I'm kind of a MacGyver photographer. I use whatever I have and whatever I can, and whatever we get is what we get. So you just did a TEDx talk, and you killed it. So how does it feel then to be able to call yourself a TEDx speaker? And do you have imposter syndrome around that? Yeah, you know, I just started using the word professional speaker, like public speaker and writer after my TEDx talk. I actually was able to grasp public speaker and writer titles for myself a lot faster than professional photographer because professional photographer came very naturally and it was a, an organic, almost a feeling thing. And so I had to have my own, I had to believe in myself. I had six months of TEDx training, intensive writing, drafting, performance. Like I had speech therapy, like I had all these things that I was like, I worked so flipping hard for this. I am a writer. I am a speaker now. But uh, before I wasn't able to say that. So now I'm uh, now that it was just released a few weeks ago. And so now I'm in this place where I, I think it's really amazing. And I think I did a really good job. And I'm really proud of myself. I'm now sitting and watching quietly as the world decides how they feel about it. And I'm trying to remind myself that I need to sit in this place of congratulatory of myself, no matter what people think, which is a weird place. And it's hard because I want to kind of shake people and go, look at this thing that I did. But it also feels weird and icky in this topic, in this subject that I'm talking about. So I'm trying to have a very um, quiet and thoughtful praise for myself without being boastful and without... Um, shoving it in people's faces because of the topic matter. So it's not as much imposter syndrome as it's trying to be patient and trying to let the 
talk organically spread because I'm not going to be the person that promotes it and sells it in a weird way, if that makes sense. It does. And I can imagine as a creator, it's hard and scary. And I think it's cool that you are voicing how that experience is for other people. Well, and I think that there's something, I mean, not to put my project separate from other people's, but with Faces of Fortitude, it's when you see a photographer that does like amazing action sports photography or something like that, that I kind of grew up seeing through this, this company, um, you look at their image and it's very personal to them because they created this image and it's beautiful and oh, look at the lighting and look at the flare of the sweat and all of this, but nobody's, um, nobody's direct vulnerability is affected by it. Does that make sense? So when I put those pictures up and I have an exhibit and I see one of my faces like Caleb and his tears and I see someone judge that image as art, it breaks my heart because that's not what that's not it's not that kind of art. My art is subjective like all art is, but people unzip their hearts and put it in front of you and it's about it's bigger than art in this uh, medium, I guess. It's an idea. It's a it's a movement now. And so I have to be very careful. So that first exhibit was so heart-wrenching for me. Just having people walk around silently looking at these images, judging them was excruciating. I was like, oh, why did I do this? Why do you think people were judging? Why do you think people were judging? Because I wasn't walking around judging. Uh, maybe that's the wrong word. Um, just examining. They were looking. They were feeling them. And I... I had to resist the urge of going behind every person and explaining every story to them hmm. because I felt like I wanted to make sure they understood what that person sacrificed to share their story. That level of, e of bravery is not really um, understood by everyone if you haven't gone through it yourself. If you have been touched by suicide in some way and you look at those photos, you go, oh God. How did they do that? That's so brave. But if you haven't been touched by it in some way, um, it's really hard to understand. And that's kind of, I mean, I, without getting into it, I'm writing a second TED Talk right now that, um, yeah, girl. That, that is all around the stigma and how that stigma comes. And it comes because people are afraid of that type of emotion. So if you haven't been touched by it and you are affected and you see it and you react and you have this weird knee-jerk reaction, you create shame in that person that feels it. And that's what the stigma is. And um, I'm trying to battle that by being this mama bear that's, you know, at my exhibits. And the second exhibit was easier. And then I just had an exhibit where I was a guest in Florida and that was easier. But that was also mind-blowing because these were total strangers. These were not people that came to see my exhibit like my other two. These were people that came to see a mental health exhibit and didn't know what they were going to see. So um, it was fun being a fly on the wall at that one to see people go and gasp and read the little tags and read my name and look me up on their phone. And it was cool. I felt like I was on a hidden camera show or something. <laughs> we didn't even, I didn't even fully go into what the project, what the movement is. I like that. I like that we waited a little bit to tell people. <laughs> Let's go back to tell me about what it is and then take me back to the moment where you realized this is what you wanted to create. Yeah. Faces of Fortitude is now 
a movement in portraits is what I like to call it. It started as a project, a side project, and now it's a movement in portraits that doesn't tell stories, but it tells the emotions and the feelings of different stages of grief, loss, and trauma. And uh, all people that have been affected by suicide in some way, be it loss, attempt, and even first responders. And uh, like I said, end of October is uh, the two-year anniversary. And as a producer here at Creative Live, when I worked here, it we had a speaker come, and she's a photographer, this amazing woman named Stacy Persall. And she came, she's a wounded war vet, and she came and talked about using her trauma to create a project that helped herself heal, but not only that, creating these personal projects to help other people heal as well. And I was literally a seat filler. I will admit that to anybody. I was this 40-something. I literally was just trying to get off my feet. My feet hurt. (laughs) So I filled the seat and I sat in the back and I listened. And man, when she started talking, I had this this light bulb and I thought, maybe I should do this. But then I was like, I'm not a photographer. I'm a producer. Like, I have an old 10-year-old Nikon in my closet that my father-in-law gifted to me. What do I know about pictures? And I, we had kind of befriended each other. She was here for a conference. And so we had talked over a few days and I went up to her afterwards and I said, I think I thought of something. And she said, talk to me about it. Let's, let's have some wine and talk about it. And I told her and she said, you have to do this. And I said, oh, and then here comes the imposter syndrome. I was like, oh, my camera's 10 years old. It's, and I barely even know how to use it. And she said, perfect lighting and it doesn't matter. And I said, oh, I don't know anything about lighting. She paused and she looked at me and she said, you work for Creative Live. They make lighting classes. You get it for free. At this point, you have no excuse, except for the fact that you're not ready. And I said, no, I'm totally ready. And she said, then think of a name, think of all your things, do everything you need to do. And then the first photo needs to be of yourself. And I was like, "Woo!" it's like somebody pulled the emergency brake on me. I was like, wow, okay. And I said, but I hate pictures of myself. And she said, then you need to figure out why. And so I sat in that studio with a remote and my camera on a tripod. And I took pictures of myself for like three hours. And I had to figure out why I hated pictures of myself. And especially why I hated them when I was being vulnerable and when I felt vulnerable. And I realized that most of us don't like pictures of ourselves when we're upset or crying. You know, whether it's because we get puffy or because we don't like the angles or because we don't like our double chin when we cry or we feel like it's quote unquote ugly crying. Um, Most of us don't like that. So I had to figure out a way to light it to make people feel comforted by the darkness and the shadows and um, rather than um, their vulnerability being in the spotlight, if that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. I now can't imagine a world where faces doesn't exist. Really? Oh, I love And it's that. making me tear up. I know. Because you're talking about the origins of it, and then it's like, whoa. Well, what if this didn't exist? Well, and not only that, but I, so what I get, see, I'm on the other side of that statement. So what I get is I have these daily uh, fights with myself of, this is not sustainable, how are you going to keep this going? Like we have, I have exhausted my funding and my husband, my poor husband working, trying to help keep this alive. And we're in this transition period now where I'm trying to make, you know, speaking happen and traveling happen so I can keep this sustainable. And, um, I probably think, and Stacey Purcell actually looked at me and told me this at one point. She said, there are, there is not a day in a week that goes by 
that I don't think that I can't do this anymore. And she wants to quit all the time. She thinks that she can't sustain hers either. And so my feelings aren't unique, but every time I think of that, and it happens almost every day, if not every other day, um, I will get a message from someone that says basically what you've said is you don't realize how many times you've saved me or you don't realize how many times you've saved or maybe you don't know how many lives you've saved. For me, that's bizarre to hear. Um, I don't think I've saved lives. I think I'm a reed. I'm a, I think I'm, a, I'm the um, vessel for it. And I think that I've created a space and now the bravery of the people using that space is just as important as I am. Um, but I think at this point, I can't imagine the project not being here for me. And I know that's very selfish, but the amount of healing that I get with every single person I sit with, they keep me going. And I don't think they realize that is that every single person I talk to, I don't shoot very much anymore. I shoot maybe once a month, maybe twice a month because it gives me enough content to roll over. And then I still have faces from the beginning that I'm trying to give like you today, like I'm trying to give. So, um, it's, it's the shooting is, is where it begins and where I get my kind of energy back, but all of the work in between is hard and it's a lot. And so I get fueled by comments like that and by people that feel that. And it reminds me, it's such a great reminder of why I'm doing this, you know? Let's talk about how this project has helped you. In addition to all the people around the world, what has changed for you in the past two years? Wow. I mean, it's funny, but I, two of our previous co or co-workers, um, Jen and Celeste, watched me do my TED Talk in front of people right before I did it. So they did, like, I did this little run through. And they both looked at me afterwards and said, we don't know who that was. Like, you're a different person now in such a good way. Like, you have transformed. We've watched you transform. That's the only way I can put it. Like, I feel like it's given me a voice. Um, I feel like when I left Creative Live, it felt very scary. And it felt, I mean, I remember looking at everybody in tears going, what am I going to do? Faces of fortitude can't continue if I'm not at Creative Live. This is This was my base. But really, the universe just was giving me a huge kick in the pants. Like, come on, you can do this. And so I think it gave me some courage to make my own roots and uh, pull my pants up from around, you know, and just really like be a big girl in it and find a voice and piss some people off. You know, I, I got my first really kind of large troll recently, which, you know, surprisingly for such a painful topic, I don't have very many haters. A friend of mine recently told me you've got great odds. You should probably go get a lottery ticket because I don't. I, I think I can count less than five. That's pretty incredible. And one, and it's just one that has sent me just pretty horrible emails and um, messages. But it's consistent. And what the trolls always say, and they kind of feed my insecurities, is that um, I'm profiting off people's pain. Which, <laughs> if you could see my bank account, I am not. Um, and and this project doesn't. You know, I actually told people this. I will never charge people for faces of fortitude for the photo sessions ever. Period. Um, that's just you can pay Mary Angela Abeo to do 
a speaking engagement, but Faces of Fortitude will always be my own thing that I put my own money into. I will not have a, I've decided not to be a, a nonprofit. I won't have a board. This is just me. And, I, and because once other people's decisions come in, especially people that have not been touched mm. by it in some way, um, things will get jaded and I don't want that ever. But even the trolls have helped me see how it's helped me in the way of my voice man, it's created some pretty amazing boundaries. My therapist, you know, I've had to work very closely with my therapist over the last two years in this project. And I didn't realize how boundaryless I was. You know, I I was raised as a, you know, Roman Catholic, 100% Italian. So yeah, we don't really have boundaries in general. But, and your uh, mama bear, right, as you said exactly. earlier. And so I, I didn't really know what boundaries were. My poor daughter, I mean, <laughs> she... She loves me with her whole heart, but she's, yeah, she's learning to put them in place and has her own therapy now too, which I'm sure I dominate most of those conversations. But now it's interesting because now I'm putting boundaries in place because I'm feeling so overwhelmed because people see me as the go-to person when they have somebody in their life that's suicidal or if they are having a problem or if they're having a, um, a tragic event. I'm not, I'm not anybody special. Like I'm not trained. I am not a therapist. I cannot help you. And so I've had to find very loving ways to explain that to people, but still be a space. So I'm, I'm having to create these boundaries of, I am glad I could give you this space to put this. However, I'm not going to fix it for you. And I can't, that's hard for me. I do equate you and faces yeah, with suicide and, and mental health. And, you know, with you hear something in the news and like I go to your Instagram to see what you might be saying about it or because I know there'll be other people there. Like after the Zach Williams, Robin Williams son's post, um, my email overflowed and I started getting very panicked emails from people who didn't realize that there was a public space that they could share their story. And so they thought that that was my email inbox. And all of a sudden, I didn't get just inquiries. I got emails, 15 paragraphs of their stories. That's too much for me to absorb. Believe me, I actually tried 48 hours of reading emails without sleeping because I felt like I owed everyone something. And I learned very quickly that that was very unhealthy for me. But I had to create a little bit of a canned response to people that do send me things like that that says, listen, I did not read your story and let me tell you why. It has nothing to do with the importance of your story because what happened to you is so important and painful and I'm so sorry. But it deserves 100% attention and 100% love and validation and I don't have the capacity for that. So I'm so glad you were able to get it out on paper, get it out of your mind, put it into an email and send it to me. That's super brave. I'm going to keep it here. And when I do have time to read it and look at it, I will. And it might never happen. Understand that, but know that how brave and wonderful it is that you did it. That's huge. And most people, and I also tell them, if I do choose you to be a face, I don't want to read this because I want to hear it all in front of my camera for the first time, which is really important. And I think I even said that to you when we were talking, when we were talking about you being a face and you started telling me things, I was like, oh, stop. I want to hear it in front of my camera. It's really important. How do you approach a session? It's interesting because most of the time they've given me some background in email and I... <laughs> 
I tell them it's a combination of how many drugs I did in the 90s and the fact that I put it out of my mind because I don't want to retain what they said to me on purpose. I want it to be fresh. And um, when they do sit in front of me, my camera is on a tripod and I want to make eye contact with them because, man, there's nothing worse than talking about your worst fears or something terrible and having somebody not look at you. It's just, it's terrible. It's a terrible feeling. So I never want to do that to someone. So I always start with my own story simply because no one is going to trust you with something this terrible unless they hear you're terrible first. And so I will always base how many details I give people on how much I think they can handle because I get pretty detailed um, and I share a lot of my brother's um, last moments and my own. And most of the time I get people that are so ready to share by the end of that because um, like one of the faces in the project, Michael Hebb said, we all connected our deepest pain. If you hear someone talking about a pain that you've experienced, you immediately connect that to yourself and say, I've been there. I've done that. I felt this. I know it. And you want to be their friend. That's what we do. And so people will connect at that moment. Now, I've found, especially over the last year, that there's something very important in the reaction that I give people. It's a validation that I don't think I ever had as a child. And I'm realizing now through therapy and through this project, which is very therapeutic to me, that there is a reaction there that we all need. So if you're talking to me about a terrible terrible thing that happened to you and you're giving me details and I'm taking photos when you give me a detail that shocks me and that's terrible to me I need to show you every way that that affects me because there's something really important for you to see my reaction lets you know how terrible it really was and you're not alone and that oh my god she gets it she gets how terrible that was for me. That's healing. That's so healing for me. Every time I talk about my sexual assault in my sessions, I will every once in a while, I will have a face cover their mouth and look horrified for me. That does something for me. Do you think it's empowering? Is that just you're being seen and you're being heard? And it's a validation that if you've kept something inside. Yeah. I think it's it's a validation, but there's something there's something about that level of being seen. We are all like to consider ourselves seeing and seeing people, but to be seen at that level, that vulnerable level of I am telling you something traumatic, and you're not only seeing it and hearing it, you are validating it and horrifying being horrified with me. And that's just a level of seeing that we don't feel. You know, we're so desensitized right now in our society that we don't let ourselves feel because I mean, and I'm going to get controversial here for a minute. God forbid somebody gets triggered. I know that's horrible, but let me tell you what trigger means. It means there's something you haven't dealt with. Like, sorry, but that's what my next Ted talk is about is about word policing. And I open the entire talk with 20 words that are cringeworthy, whether it's molestation, self-inflicted, abortion, like all of these words make people cringe. Let's talk about why. How did you determine the words or 
How did this come to you? Well, it's funny. It all started from a, and I tell the story without names in the talk about a conversation I had with a Creative Live student. And it, it was hilarious because it was about six months into creating Faces of Fortitude. And I was the producer for the student experience. And so the students kind of came to me when they were in the studio. And so they all followed me on Instagram and we're all friends. And um, this one student came up to me and, you know, Faces of Fortitude was kind of taking off in the first six months. And they came up to me and they were like, so I saw your thing, the thing on Instagram, you know, the sad, it was so sad. I'm so sorry. It was... It's so beautiful, but it's so sad. She could not say the word suicide. She could barely, t she was at a whisper. And so you know me, I, I don't skirt around words at all, ever. And so in my outside voice is what I like to call it. In the kitchen, I said, do you mean my project about suicide? And she cringed, cringed, shrunk, whispered even lower and said, yeah, ooh, yes, that. And I said, I'm sorry, that was insensitive of me. Is this, is it something close to your heart? Is it something that's happened to you? It's just, I hate it when people whisper about it. And she said, no, 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 I've never been touched by it. And I looked at her and I shook my head and I said, then why are you whispering? Shouldn't I be the one whispering? I'm not whispering, you know why? This is the problem. Like you made me feel bad saying that word. And it's not a bad word. It's something bad that happens to us. But we have to be able to get those words out in full volume. And so that's what this is about, is how many people whisper about their abortions? How many people whisper about the word self-inflicted when it comes to self-harm or sex worker or strippers, you know, molestation? Those are words you do not hear in regular indoor voices. You hear them in whispers, and that's creating shame. It needs to stop and it needs to stop by us having these conversations and faces of fortitude kind of started that for me is let's talk about this in a regular voice for longer than a therapy session because it's not about therapy anymore it needs to get out of our therapy sessions it needs to get out of our doctor's offices and come into normal life Whew. <laughs> sorry that was a lot <laughs> no i, I want to start clapping um do you feel that you might branch out into other topics in terms of your photography as well? No, I don't think I could handle that. I think it would be too much to bite off. But I do think um, I'm building a page for my website now that's all about my signature talks. And I think that's going to, it's definitely going to branch off into signature talks. Because I think, you know, in, in prepping for this first TEDx talk, I did a lot of Brene Brown studying, who's just fantastic. And, you know, I, my goal was to speak authentically like her. Her level of conversation and data around shame is so important on a medical level on what on a you know psychiatrist and therapist level but I feel like I'm I'm coming from the other end from her and I'm on the grassroots bottom feeder <laughs> like the the actual survival level survivor level of like this is what we're experiencing this is what I'm experiencing shame wise and and I'm kind of almost dealing with the whole thing in reverse like okay here this is what's making me feel shame let's break this down why and um I realized it wasn't just suicide when I started writing the talk it was only going to be about that word and then I realized how many other words carry that shame around it and I thought oh and it, and 50% of it has nothing to do with people being triggered because of their own experiences 50% is because people feel uncomfortable and icky around it. That's all. That's mind blowing to me. 
Mm. Like you are not allowed to halt my healing because you feel icky. That's not allowed anymore around me. I feel like if there's an icky feeling that that's, there needs to be healing there as well. Like, let's talk about it. Like suicide is, there's nothing comfortable about it. And right now, and I hate, it's funny because I'm speaking at um, the AFSP out of the darkness walk here in Seattle in a few weeks. And they sent me a bunch of guidelines of things I'm not supposed to talk about. And that was a hard one for me because I was like, do I want to battle? Do I want to pick this battle right now? Um, And I decided to not battle them over it because I can make my speech happen without the words that they were saying. But um, it's a bigger discussion that needs to happen because are we going to police people that have grieved? Because if you police me and tell me what words not to say, that tells me that those words are shameful and that I'm not allowed to say them. And it makes me hold them in and they're toxic. There's something inherently wrong with that. Now, education of the greater community around being sensitive around suicide and the methods and things like that, totally get, totally understand. But there is a, there's a bleed over here into the people that are trying to heal. And that's a problem. And that's why in, I've been approached several times to do a podcast for Faces of Fortitude, like the aftermath or people sharing their stories. I've also been asked why I take handwritten notes and why I don't record people because it would be easier for me. Um, there's something very important about people's anonymity and not wanting something on the cloud or somewhere recorded for the rest of their lives. I want to give that to them. You know, people want, people say very dark and very, very sad, sometimes violent things. And I want them to feel safe to share it. Have you come to learn from sort of like a, I don't know, there's like the psychology part, but then like the scientific part of like what releasing trauma in your body like actually does for people. I am, when I did the talk at Death and Music, which was November of last year, a doctor came up to me afterwards who also spoke and he was amazing about trauma. and, And he looked at me and he said, you know, everything you talked about, about your trauma and about your growth and about how you created this project, he said, it's a thing. And I said, excuse me? And he said, what happened to you? What you're doing? It's a, th- it's a, like a scientific thing. And I was like, so I have a disease. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was so excited. And he said, it's called post-traumatic growth and you should look it up. And I was like, really? I was so fascinated. I Googled for like two hours. And he said, the crazy part is that every single step that you explained in your talk is exactly how we talk about it in the medical field. You would, you're a perfect example of what post-traumatic growth is. And post-traumatic growth essentially is someone who has experienced a severe trauma and then takes their trauma and channels that energy into bettering themselves and essentially becoming a better person than they were before the trauma happened to them. Which, of course, looking back, I'm like, wow, I didn't realize I was doing that. But so many people do it. Most of the people you see that have post-traumatic growth are motivational speakers, people that have experienced this trauma and have gone on to help other people. And so now I'm at this place of 
okay, now that I know that this is a thing, let's look back. Let's look at these faces. And there's so many faces that come to me. I just had one, Kyle, who just messaged me two days ago and said, Mary Angela, today's the 11th anniversary of the day I tried to take my life. And just sharing my story this last year has been monumental for me. I have, when you share something like that, it creates a space in your body to fill it with something else. And you have this kind of elbow room that you create in your existence that, you know, it's it's uncomfortable. When you're sharing something uncomfortable, it makes you shift in different ways. You know, like when you're uncomfortable in a seat and you kind of shift around. In your life, if you're sharing something uncomfortable, you shift and you create this elbow room around you that if you sit in it afterwards and you pause and look at all of those ways that you moved and grew, you have more room to grow in other ways after that if you really kind of channel it correctly. And I think that there are so many faces. Autumn is another great example. She was 15 when she did the project with her mom. Now she's almost 17. She was in the very beginning of the project. And she went from having a suicide plan to now being an artist that sells her grief art to other people for like tattoo art. And she's brilliant. She's amazing. So there are people that needed to get that space. And it's funny, somebody recently posted a quote, and I wish I could say it verbatim, but it was talking about sometimes we don't want help with our trauma. Sometimes we need somebody to listen so that we can get the words out of our head, out of our bodies, into the air and let them go. It's not about being fixed. It's about being truly heard because those words are very harmful. What does fortitude mean to you? I can only give you a visual. It's that uh, beaten down, bruised, bloody, dirty Viking that survived the battle and is coming by himself, dragging his sword behind him and has survived barely, but is stronger because of it. It's very visual for me. That's the only reason I chose it. I needed something that showed how brutal it is. Suicide's brutal. It's brutal. But man, when you survive it, no matter what way you survive, whether it's you survived an attempt, you survived the horrible trauma, loss of a loved one, or you were a first responder that saw something tragic, man, when you if you can rise up past that out of this rubble, beaten down, bruised, it's it does something for you. Back to your TED Talk, putting the words celebrate and suicide in the same sentence and title for me was was very impactful. It was very controversial, you know. I didn't I had people not agree with that choice when I was choosing my title, but I said I'm sorry, I'm, that's actually really important to me. So what is the title? Because I want to encourage everybody to go watch it and share it. Yeah, celebrate the survivor creating safe spaces around suicide. We have to celebrate that moment because if we're not, we're whispering and we're shame, shameful about it. And really, like, we are celebrating something so brave, so brave. And, you know, when you listen to the talk, I always tell people at the end when I'm sharing images of the talk, um, the one image I shared of Stacy um, McLaughlin who lost her son to suicide here. She was one of the first faces in the project. Um, if you listen really closely, you can just see the face and you can hear my voice and I start crying when I see her face because, man, if that woman is not thriving and a picture of fortitude, I don't know what is. 
Thank you so much, Em, for for being on the podcast. Where can people go find out more about the project? Um, I think the most popular place is Instagram right now. It's where we all kind of do all of our things. So um, at Faces of Fortitude on Instagram. I'm at Faces of Fortitude Portraits on Facebook. And then facesoffortitude.com is the website where you can go link to all of that. You can link to an application to be a face. You can find out more about the project, see videos, um, see all of the different podcasts and things I've been on and all of that. Come to our community. Be part of it. There's always a place for you to sit next to me. I mean, it's virtual. So I I always have a seat next to myself. (laughs) Well, on behalf of also of all of your faces and me being one, thank you. Thank you. I couldn't do it without my faces. I'd just be here by myself talking about myself the whole time. So (laughs) thank you so much. Thanks. I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live, edited by Laura Finnerty. Connect with Mariangela Abeo on Instagram at Mariangela Abeo. Join the Faces of Fortitude community on Instagram at Faces of Fortitude and find out how to get involved on facesoffortitude.com. Please note if you are thinking about suicide, are worried about a friend or a loved one, or would like emotional support, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network is available 24-7 across the United States at 1-800-273-8255. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, head over to creativelive.com and check out the Creator Pass, our subscription that gives you access to over 1,500 classes taught by the world's top creators and entrepreneurs. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever it is you listen to podcasts. You can stay up to date with everything happening at Creative Live by following us on social media at Creative Live Everywhere. Thank you again to Mariangela Abeo for being my 50th guest on We Are Photographers. I'm super excited to share this milestone episode with you. And for those of you new to the podcast, there are 49 more guests with their incredible stories that connect us all as humans and remind us that we are not alone in life or our creative pursuits. I want to give a huge shout out to my editor, Laura Finnerty, who has created the beautiful sound beds and storyline for each and every episode. You would not be hearing this podcast without Laura's talent. And on behalf of all of us here at Creative Live, I'm so grateful for everyone who has subscribed to the podcast, given me feedback, and suggested other guests that you want to hear on the show. I invite you to message me on Instagram at Kenna Klosterman with your suggestions too. Thank you again for your support, and I'll see you all next week for another episode of We Are Photographers.